All right. Thank you, listeners. This is Michael Chartier, the Senior Director of State Relations here at EdChoice, welcoming you again to another EdChoice chat. We're going to be looking back what happened in the month of July and maybe previewing a few things, not very much, but maybe a few things that happened in the month of August here. We have in studio with me our ever-present Lauren Hodge, who's continuing to get her feet right across the country, learning a few state capitals along the way, and becoming a world, a bit of a world traveler. On the phone, uh, Jason Bedrick, our policy director, who is ever-present at these policy conferences and, and leading us into the future of expanded ed choice policies. So I'll give them a second to introduce themselves, and we'll get started. Michael, thanks for having me as always. I'm glad to be here, Michael. It's wonderful to have another chance to sit down and talk about what's going on across the nation. Well, perfect. So first, we'll start with Lauren. We had a major case come down in Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico, I, I, I understand, had a, had a court case involving their, their sort of newly passed voucher program. And I hear that there are some rulings in that, that case. Lauren, would you, do you want to give our, re- our sorry, readers, our listeners, an update on, on what's going on with that case? Absolutely, Michael. So um, Puerto Rico is a really interesting case that's come down. And and for those of you who have listened or followed the school choice movement, you know that there have been numerous legal challenges along the way, challenging the um, viability of the voucher system, challenging the way that tax credit scholarships work. And so uh, Puerto Rico was no exception to this rule. And the the etymology for this lawsuit in Puerto Rico is interesting. And I think for, for the listeners, it's really important to set the stage for um, where vouchers in the in the country came from, and and you know, it, Puerto Rico is no exception to national uh, natural disasters. And so, what you had was the devastation of natural disasters happening in Puerto Rico, and with this constant need to rebuild, especially in this most recent year, um, one of the things that came to mind was the education system. And so, um, what's kind of interesting is that Puerto Rico was able to see. And it's anecdotal at some times, but you can actually watch that there have been students who have gone from Puerto Rico to Florida. And it's interesting because Florida has such a rich choice environment for students. Um, And so you weren't having that same opportunity in Puerto Rico. And so they tried to pass what was essentially a voucher. And that, of course, like many times, as we've seen previously, was challenged in the court system. And what is extraordinary about this case, and if there are any attorneys listening uh, you will know this is extraordinary. The parties were given five days to submit their briefs. Um, so for anyone who's ever had to work on that type of uh, litigation, five days to submit a brief is is jaw-breaking jaw and jaw-dropping. And so it was um, a really interesting move that was made by the Puerto Rican courts. And they said, because this is so important, because education has such a, a um, foundational issue here, we we want to make a decision before the school year. And so in an extraordinary show by the courts who typically are not fast-moving bodies, they issued this opinion before the actual school year started. And so it's a big win in Puerto Rico. They upheld the vouchers. This is following the national trend that we have seen uh, where vouchers are being held constitutional time and time again. And so now adding to the school choice movement, we have the wonderful uh, territory of Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's perfect. It is a territory, right? I think it is a territory. Just double checking. I'm learning the state capitals as we go along, too. That's the capital of Puerto Rico, San Juan. San Juan. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
Um, I think, you know, I think one of the things that I want to talk a little bit about as we've we kind of moved through our state slash territory uh, update, you know, obviously legislative sessions are out of out of town and you know, legislators are looking to that that month of November or something that happens the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November that, that that I guess affects all of us. I'm not really sure what that is, but I know a lot of legislators keep talking about that. So you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the legislative sessions and sort of bills and whatnot are, are dying down because of because of that uh, that thing. Um, but we'll, we we kind of move here as a, as a state team and as a policy team. Um, over to uh, sort of conference season. Uh, you know, we, we attend conferences uh, across the country, both in terms of policy and and uh, networking and talking to talking about the Ed Choice brand and what we stand for and what we believe in to a variety of people, both uh, other nonprofits, legislators, lobbyists, and 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 those those uh, other interest groups out there. So I wanted to maybe sort of briefly talk about. The conference of the uh, National Conference of State Legislators, or NCSL, that I think a lot of you guys are probably familiar with. We we all flew out to Los Angeles and hosted a booth out there, and we attended the uh, NCSL conference. Uh, Robert spoke on a panel about uh, educational funding um, and w- what those different funding mechanisms look like across the country, and sort of how, what the interplay is between school choice and those funding mechanisms. I know we could probably do a podcast with him down the road, maybe about those sorts of things, and I'm sure he'd love to talk about that. But just to kind of give you guys an update uh, on what we did, what we've been kind of doing across the country. Uh, and I think what was most interesting about uh, um, NCSL is that it is one of the most well-attended atten- uh, legislative conferences in, um, across the country, at least that I've been to. I mean, I, there were there were hundreds, hundreds if not and the low thousands of, of, of legislators there from all 50 states, uh, both Republican and Democrat, uh, longtime friends on both sides of the aisle, stopped by the booth and, and chatted with us. Um, so it was definitely very good to, to kind of go out there and meet, meet and interact with, with old friends and, and obviously new friends that we became aco- uh, across. And I think one of the things we were trying to do at NCSL is to reach a n- new and diverse set of o- audiences. You know, our, our boss, Robert Enloe, uh, you know, certainly, uh, uh, and if he's listening to this, uh, I hope he's not, but likes to crack the whip and make sure that we're out meeting uh, new new people and new audiences. I think that's one of the best places that we we have and will continue to be able to do that. Uh, one of the other places that, w- that we that we uh, went to is is um, ALEC, what's known as ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And I think for, 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 for the listeners that, that don't know what ALEC is, ALEC is a, is a mix of, of both uh, folks in, in, in industry and in the nonprofit sector and the think tank sector, uh, as well as legislators coming together and talking about talking about policy. It's basically like NCSL, uh, just a, a smaller conference. And um, you know, I think pe- I think people out in the media would con- consider that more of a conservative type uh, uh, conference. Um, you know, they both have uh, model policies, uh, and we we advocate for model policies in both both uh, NCSL and Alec. Um, and we, we have presented at both and, and, and kind of taken a little bit of uh, uh, time to talk about policies and our view of educational choice at both NCSL and, and at, at ALEC. And I know that Robert Enloe obviously spoke at uh, ALEC as well and kind of gave an update on what his views of, um, of educational choice are and how, we, how our mission impacts uh, folks at both NCSL and ALEC. Um, but I do know, since we have our policy director, policy director on the phone, that uh, there was a model bill that came up that kind of discussed 
um, a, v- a version of school choice, education savings accounts. And, and, and for our listeners that don't know, education savings accounts are a parentally controlled account uh, for educational expense expenses funded by state government um, or this policy is not passed yet, but also could be funded by tax credit scholarships. Um, and, and parents would have control over their account to spend on approved, obviously it would have to be approved educational expenses uh, for their children so they can really customize and tailor those their child's uh, education. But um, in this, this last proposal, uh, there was uh, uh, from Bart Danielson from uh, North Carolina North Carolina State University talked about creating economic improvement zones uh, for folks and and folks in economic improvement zones would would be eligible uh, to receive an ESA and I kind of wanted to kick it over to Jason and maybe we could have a bit of a conversation about what these economic you know, so basically what the model policy is what we think is good what we think you know could be improved upon you know. What is the ideal in terms of ed choice and our mission? So, Jason, would you want to give our listeners a little bit about um, this model bill and, and, and maybe what our thoughts were and, and ways that can be improved and ways that we've supported it? Sure. So uh, the economic improvement zones, and it, it, there are different names in different states, but essentially they usually are looking at a distressed area, high levels of unemployment, high levels of poverty. And in this area, policymakers uh, will enact a number of policies in order to spur job growth and development in the area. In some cases, it could be reducing tax rates or easing up on particular regulations. And what Bart Danielson is proposing, and he's he's involved with a group uh, that is advancing school choice for environmental reasons, uh, because uh, his research has shown that in areas with school choice, you're less likely to have uh, basically white flight, people moving to the suburbs to get away from bad school systems. They have school choice and they're, they're able to choose a school that meets the needs of their children. They're more likely to stay in the community. And from an environmentalist perspective, it's, that's a good thing, having people in, in denser urban areas rather than having suburban sprawl. Uh, so that's, I believe, where, where his primary interest is. EdChoice doesn't take a position on economic uh, development zones or, or anything of the sort. question for us is whether we would support having EdChoice, uh, you know, education savings accounts in particular, as one of the tools in the economic development zone toolbox. And in that sense, uh, yes, we, we do support that. Obviously, our broad mission is to advance educational opportunity for all students. And so our model bill, which we helped work on Alex model bill, uh, we, we like what they have. Our model bill would have access to all students, just like the public schools do, uh, at least in a particular zone, right? If Bill Gates moves into a community and wants to send his child to a public school, um, they don't charge him an additional cent. Uh, the public schools are supposed to, at least in a geographic area, be open to all students. Education savings accounts, likewise, should be open to all students. Uh, it puts everybody in one basket as opposed to, you know, dividing people up, which which can be divisive uh, politically as well. And that essentially uh, came, that, that's actually the, 
the question that people were debating is, well, sometimes you have a means tested program and it's opposed by some people because they don't qualify. And what about this? You know, if you live outside of the economic development zone, then you wouldn't qualify. Uh, to that, we say, you know, we are in favor of incremental reforms, especially incremental reforms that prioritize first those who are the most disadvantaged and don't have uh, access to choice currently. Uh, so that fits with uh, our vision of incrementalism toward universal access to educational choice. Uh, and also, I believe that, uh, and this is, this is an empirical question, but uh, I believe it's more likely that we will be able to expand the geographic boundaries of an educational choice program that is otherwise available to everybody living within those boundaries than it would be uh, when uh, some politicians will advocate for a program only for a specific class of student, you know, special needs student or low income student. And later they come back to expand the program and the opposition says, well, wait a second, you originally told us it was just for this type of student. Now you're telling us it's for that type of student. It's, I think, a lot easier to, to just say, well, you know, we want to move these geographic boundaries. We want to expand it to people that live outside of these boundaries. So this is uh, not ideal. It's, again, it's a step in the right direction. It's an incremental reform. But, you know, as policymakers, uh, I don't think, and policy advocates, I don't think that we should have an all or nothing approach uh, as long as the policy is otherwise a good policy, as long as it's not doing anything that is going to interfere with uh, the freedom of schools to teach and the freedom of parents to select the schools and learning environments that they think are best for their children. Uh, if it's a step in the right direction, I think we should be taking it. Well, thank you, Jason, for that. What you know, as you kind of talked about, you know, these these programs expanding outside geographical boundaries, I think one of the elements of the, the, the program that Bart talked about was the fact that sort of once in, once in, always in, right, that, you know, once an area is deemed an economic improvement zone, that it would, you know, that, 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 that people in that, in that vicinity would always be able to utilize an ESA, you know, what sort of effect do you think that would have on on um, sort of the expansion, as it were, as you talked about, you know, if a place is always in there, you know, how do you think that affects how, to, how that would affect the surrounding areas over time? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think just one point first, the zone designation could change. Important thing is that once you have access to the ESA, you would continue to have access to the ESA because you don't want a situation where people have access to it one year and then not the next. And then, you know, they're in a very, very difficult situation. But I think if, uh, if people see that uh, those living in this zone have access to educational choice and are exercising it and like it, uh, they're going to want it in their own area as well. So even if they're not going to expand the economic improvement zone, I think that it will create political pressure to expand access to education savings accounts and other ed choice options. I completely agree with that. I think our our survey data and our polling data, data seems to indicate that when people find out and learn more about these options, that they want to they want to themselves take part in those options and 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 expand the program for 
so that they're eligible and they're also included in these sorts of these sorts of programs. Well, I think you know we've come up to the end of our of our time here. We can get our listen get have our listeners get back to their to their lives. Any other last thoughts from many of our coworkers here or anybody on the phone? Yeah, I just want to make one point about policy as well while we're on the subject. It's crucial to get the legislation right. That's why organizations like uh, ALEC and NCSL are are so important. They serve as exchanges for ideas where legislators from around the country can come together and meet with experts in different fields uh, and work on trying to improve legislation. And there's a there are real policy, real world outcomes that can be positive or negative as a result. Uh, and right now I have on my mind Illinois. So the Department of Revenue in Illinois uh, recently came out with its interpretation of Illinois' tax credit. And they have a $75 million tax credit program. Um, it's you know relatively small for the size of the state. It's going to serve only a fraction of 1% of the students. Uh, so it's going to be uh, oversubscribed. And uh, in the case that it's oversubscribed, uh, scholarship organizations are supposed to prioritize four categories of students. And otherwise, they're holding a lottery, even among those categories of students, if it's oversubscribed within that category. So those four categories are returning students, low-income students, uh, students that are in focus districts, which are you know these uh, districts that have lower-performing schools, and also sib- uh, qualified siblings of, of current scholarship students. Now, the legislators who wrote the law put number one as number one for a reason. Number one is the students who are returning. But the way that the department has interpreted the rules, all four categories have equal priority. Now, this is really deep in the weeds, but it has major consequences when it comes to implementing this program. Because let's say that you've got uh, 10,000 students that apply and only 1,000 students can receive a scholarship. And of those 1,000 students, 500 of them uh, students received the scholarship in the previous year. What happens under the ideal system is that those 500 students are given scholarships first, and then the 950 students are put in a lottery to get those other 500 scholarships. What happens under this system is, and again, we're assuming that all these uh, 10,000 students are uh, in one of these four priority categories. What's here is that all of the students are put into a lottery. And so only a fraction of those returning students are actually going to get a scholarship. Most of them are not going to get a scholarship based on how the lottery comes out. That is going to cause havoc. You're going to have lots of need. Again, to qualify initially, you have to be a low-income family. You're going to have lots of low-income families that sent their student to a school only because they had a scholarship. Otherwise, they couldn't afford it. And then the next year that scholarship is ripped away, that student may now have to leave that school, go to a different school. It causes a lot of chaos in the program. So these 
little details that may seem to be in the weeds can have major consequences. Uh, I think Illinois law could have been written a little clearer, but the way it was written should have been interpreted appropriately by the department. I think the department is um, at best making a grave mistake uh, and at worst uh, actively trying to undermine the effectiveness of the program. Thank you for walking through that, Jason. I mean, I know that that's that as you pointed out, that's very, very in the weeds. But I think you know, if, if listeners were followed along, they understood what how those different interpretations have massive impacts on students. What can what makes sense on paper and what makes sense in a negotiation might not really impact. Might, might not be might not be the best at, uh, in terms of an impact for for children and and what what uh, what works best for them. Well, and Michael, just to piggyback off of that, I mean, and, and to harp on Jason's point a little bit, uh, legislative intent is is important, and it's certainly something that the law looks to, and it, it looks to in its deliberative process. But if you get it written right the first time, you don't have to turn to legislative intent. And I think, you know, Jason's example is a powerful one of where it, it really matters everything that we do within CSL with ALEC. It matters that we get the policy written in the right way so that you don't have to have these questions later on down the road. It's perfect. I could not have said that better myself. Um, thank you, Lauren. Um, and I wanted to apologize to Jason, by the way. He said that we were going to talk about Illinois, and I completely forgot to ask that question. So that's on me, listeners. So thank you very much, Jason, for for catching my mistake, and, and Lauren for, for offering great, great, uh, great advice there about let's making sure we get these, these programs right and written correctly. Um, with that, um, I'll end our our EdChoice chat. I uh, look forward to uh, hearing from us again in, in one month's time when we can talk about what happened in the month of August and maybe look forward about what happened in th- what will happen in the month of September. As always, feel free to uh, subscribe to this podcast um, um, either on um, iTunes or, or anywhere else we have posted. Visit our blog for uh, our newest and up- most up-to-date information on what we're thinking, what we're writing about, and what we're feeling and visit our website for more information at www.edchoice.org. Thank you very much, listeners, for your time, and we look forward to giving you our updates here again in one month. Mm-hmm.